I'll tell you two quick stories, Chris, about this book, what it did for me. It took me on this path. It, it brought me into these communities. <clears throat> Manny was having a celebration for his life. So I go to this church. I figure there's 500 people there. I think I'm the only white person in the whole place. But then all of a sudden, Master Ceremonies introduces this one guy named Bob Capone, this little Italian guy, about 5'8", comes walking down the middle, and everybody stands and applauds for this guy. Turns out... He and Manny worked together at Central High, which was a predominantly black. He was there the day after Dr. King was killed. It was instrumental in keeping these kids under control that day. So I, I introduced myself and he goes, oh, you're the guy writing that book. I said, yeah. I said, can we talk? I said, yeah, sure. So we talked probably 12 times. Well, about a month ago, this other guy that I, who went to Central who was a white kid said, hey, Bob Capone's wife died. So he sends me the, the, the thing, and I know she had MS. And I said, oh my God, I'm so, pick up the phone, I call him. I said, I'm so sorry about your wife, Bob. He goes, oh my God, I can't believe you called. I go, no, believe me, I had to call. You're, you're part of my life now, right? You're, you helped me with my book. And he goes, no, no, I mean, I can't believe you called right now. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, it, it my wife's funeral this morning. I went, whoa, wait. Your wife's funeral was this morning? Because yeah, about two hours ago. I go, oh my God, you must have a house full of people. I'll, I'll let you go. He goes, no, 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 there's nobody here. But that's the point. He said, I get emotional just thinking about this. At the funeral, this woman comes up and she's got something behind her back. She gives me a hug. She reaches out and she hands it to me. And she said, I just finished this thing. I think you should read this. It's really good. And it was your book. And I went home, and, and Bob says, I'm going home to this empty house, and I'm dreading it. And I, I walk in, and I sat down at the kitchen table. I still have my coat on, and I haven't stopped reading your book in two hours, just leafing through it. And I haven't thought once about my situation. And he says, and here you are calling me. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast, where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Those people who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, we have a good friend of mine, MC Antiel, who has recently written Floor Burns, Love, Passion, and the 1967 Syracuse All-City Championship. It's an amazing read, but I want to take a little step back because it's not the only thing that he's done. He was in baseball working for Bill Veck at the Chicago White Sox. Bill Veck, who was one of the iconoclastic owners who changed everything. He was at uh, ESPN. Uh, new channels, uh, division of, of publishing of the new house, a fledgling cable uh, talent group, uh, moved to, to CTAM where he learned about brand, ESPN where he was the director of corporate communications. This is interesting too. After he left, left ESPN, he did MC Antiel's Cable Folks where he profiled executives and offered readers a combination of newsmaking achievement and personal backstory. He also wrote speeches 
And in writing speeches, one of one of the biggest speeches that he wrote was for Sheila C. Johnson at the Democratic National Convention endorsing Barack Obama. So this is speeches on a really high level. This is a guy who's done a lot of things and has written an amazing book. MC, thank you for joining us. It's a, it's an honor and a joy just to see you and get to talk to you. Chris, you make me sound a whole lot better than I am. Trust me. Okay. Nobody, nobody of, the, of your viewership and re listenership needs to be intimidated. Okay. <laughs> no, they do. I'm, I'm intimidated. I want to make sure that I can do justice to you and your story. The reason why I think it was so important, though, to talk about what you've done in the past is that the last time we, we talked, you quoted Samuel Beckett. And I might have you quote Samuel Beckett, but I want to know if all that stuff that you did before was preparing you for the book that you just wrote for Floor Burns. You know, it's weird. You, you say that. I kind of think, I think you've, you've gone through this too. Everything that's happened to you in your whole life is preparing you for this right now. It was funny. Just two weeks ago at Christmas, I was at a friend of mine's house. And I love this guy. He's an old Southside Italian guy. We go. I, I don't have family out here. As you know, I'm from upstate New York. <clears throat> I live out here in Chicago now. But I went over there and we were talking. We were having some drinks on Christmas Day. And I go down there and I just love the family, old, huggy, you know, Southside Italian family. And, and he says, man, you, you look good. I said, I feel good, Bob. He goes, no, because you got something going. I go, Bob, I can't explain it, but I'm 68 years old. I think I'm finally hitting my stride. And and I, I really do. I mean, I kind of think like, wow, I can't wait to get up every day because I get I get smarter every day, finally, after so many kisses, so many toads, and going down so many dead ends. But but it's really weird. Um, the one thing I always did in almost everything that I did in life, um, I was a pretty good little writer. And I just never, ever had the guts. Because I was brought up in that nuclear 50s and 60s work. Get a job with a big company. I did a little theater. I did all these things that were sort of made my mother, who was a traditionalist, really cringe. You know, like that would be, that's a nice little hobby, but you really can't do that for a living. Get yourself a job with a nice big company. And for the longest time, I did that. And then I was at ESPN. I remember this clearly. I was at ESPN and I was really tired of the corporate, corporate rut. And uh, ESPN by then, had been bought by Disney and it just didn't fit in with the Disney culture. And we're sitting there one day, I remember this clearly, and there was this thing that came across. They're having, they're going to have to lay people off, but before they did that, they were going to accept voluntary layoffs and they were going to pay you some money to go away. And I'm like, ooh, ooh, <laughs> me, it's me. So they gave me some money and I remember I left. I left uh, the ABC building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on June 11th or July 11th of 2001. And I told myself, I'll give myself two months and I'll start looking for work. And I was true to my word. Two to months, two months after July 11th of 01 was 9-11-01. I lived in the Upper West Side. The whole world changed. And suddenly this decision to become a, a freelance writer didn't look so smart. 
and I was in New York from a year hemorrhaging money. And then I went to Chicago where I had lived immediately after college. And that's when I sort of started moving in the direction of becoming a quote, full-time writer, which is what I am right now. How did you come across that, that Beckett quote? Can, and can you quote it for us? Yeah. The, the, the Beckett quote is, is um, I will tell you what, and I don't know why I did this, but when I was my just gotten out of college, there was, um, I had these Irish poet calendar and the one for December, which was my birthday was, was Beckett. And there was this grizzled old picture of this guy and he's staring right into the camera, like he's daring the cameraman to cross him. And the, and the, and the quote is, my best years may be behind me, but I wouldn't want them now. Wouldn't want them back, not for the fire in me now. And I always had that there, and I don't know why, but over the years it's been gone, I've lost it, but I've never lost the quote. It's always lived in my heart. And now I know exactly what Beckett was talking about. You know, I wouldn't want my best years back, not for the fire in me now. Are you admitting to yourself now that you're that you're a writer? Were you do were you not doing that in the past? I mean, is this living your mother's kind of like go to a big company, get the gold watch, that kind of thing? When I told you, like I'd be it, I would be doing working in the marketing department of this cable company, and they would have me write stuff. And um it it was copy and it was just and I was getting awards for it, but I wasn't, that wasn't my primary job. You know, my primary job was something other than, but they would say, hey, we need some copy for this. And I would write it. Or it, we would have Christmas parties. I would write entire state plays, right? And I would, they would, MC's good at this, let them do something for the Christmas party. And I did that, but it was a part of my job, right? And when I went <clears throat> to ESPN and I would, uh, I, would all, I would have all these kids who come in as interns and I would tell them, look, every person in the world writes a press release from their perspective. It's all hyperbolic. It's, there's adjectives and adverbs galore. I said, here's what you need to do to learn to write a press release. You write a press release with just the facts. You write a good, solid lead and then give the supporting quote and let it go. And, and I said, make it so that if an editor was on deadline, and your, your release came in and he looked at it, he read the first, the lead, he would go, here, just run it as it is. Write it as a journalist, not as a hyperbolic marketing guy. And so this guy was editor of one of these, you mentioned the cable facts. He was the editor of that, that little publication and it was a daily publication. And he said, man, when your press releases come in, we like share them with, because that's how a press release is supposed to, you're a really good writer. Would you be interested if you ever left ESPN of a column? We'll give you a weekly column. I'm like, oh, that's a start. Yeah, I'll do that. So that became, that was my first step into like doing it full time, you know, diving in at first going, well, this is it. I'm a writer. No other way of making a living. It was a, it was a, it was a pretty ballsy move, I got to tell you. Well, it's it's uh, you know it, it's kind of like the Stephen Pressfield kind of thing, right? The the uh, the war of art, like admitting that you're that you're a writer is the first step, and sometimes you don't necessarily you write and and it's not like well what what have you done? What you know? Are you in my bookshelf? Are you not? And you're like, no, I'm I'm a writer. This is this is the process. This is the profession. This is who who I 
am. How much of it came from like those early years with the White Sox with with Bill Vack too? Like, I mean, I mean, he's so known for like the Eddie Goodell thing, but he did so many things that to me were essential, were the essence of what the sport was was about. I mean, like helping to reconfigure Wrigley Stadium, right? Based on how you want to watch a game, how the game is supposed to be watched and sort of the inverse relationship, right? Between how expensive your seats are and how much you actually know about the game. How much of how much of that played into because you were we're in the in the space of genius there, right? Yeah, it was, it was, I'll tell you what, it's funny you mentioned that because over the years, I didn't have this belief early on, but over the years, I believe that everything in life is free except a good story. And the better storyteller you are, no matter what your profession, the more you'll get paid. If you're a doctor, it's, you have a good bedside manner. If you're a lawyer, your summation isn't a compelling story that makes the jury or the judge, whoever, just go, wow. I like that story a lot. And, and so you have to tell a good story. So um, I'm going to take you back 40 years. I was a bartender out of college at this Hotel Syracuse bar. And I just wanted to do something with my life. I was getting home at 3 and 4 o'clock every morning, 23 years old, and I got to do something with my life. <laughs> and so I did the boldest thing I've ever done. I called up the Atlanta Braves. And I told them that if Ted Turner would interview me for a job, I would walk to the job interview as a publicity stunt. And from Chicago, from no, from Syracuse. I was from living in okay. New York at the time, and it was fourteen below zero when I left Syracuse. But they were like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'll do that." And so I would, I, the, the, actually, the boldest thing wasn't the walk. The boldest thing was the fact I was a 23 year old knucklehead bartender, and I called a press conference. And they all showed them. All the press showed up. Because, you know, some guy, I'm sitting there two-fingering a press release saying that I'm walking to Atlanta because I want to work in baseball, right? And so, fast forward, Ted Turner was, there's a word to use in Chicago, is a jag-off, right? He was just a jag-off. He never would accept my calls. When, he, when, when I got to Atlanta, there was nobody there waiting for me. Even though the press, I, I had been on a, a bunch of national things and I'd gotten a lot of publicity. <clears throat> I'd done my job. And he was just a jerk. He, he walks into a, this is on opening day of the baseball season in 79. And he's, he orders a vodka at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And and my last name is pronounced Antil. And he's like, comes walking in. There's 50, 60 people in this little room up there. Because Bobby Cox is going to give a press conference for the team. And he goes, hey, where's Ann Hill? Pronounce my name like Ann Hill. Where's Ann Hill? I'm like a 23-year-old kid with a flannel shirt. Everybody else has got blue blazers and, you know, ties on. And I'm like, uh, I'm down here, Mr. Turner. He goes, well, Ann Hill, you walked all the way down here from New York, huh? I said, yes, sir. He says, how's your feet? I said, well, you know, not bad. I just walked, you know, a thousand miles, but they're okay. He says, uh, where, he says where are you all sleeping tonight, Ann Hill? And everybody starts cackling. And he's laughing. And I'm like, wow, this is not how I expected this thing to go. And he goes, uh, he said, where are y'all sleeping tonight? I said, I, I just got into town. I really don't know. He says, I'll tell you what, Ann Hill, since you're such a big baseball fan, why don't you sleep by home plate tonight? And he was just being 
as I said, a jag off. And I'm in there, and, I, and, and it's the second, third tier of the Atlanta, old Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium. And I walked outside, and I went to a payphone. I put a, a dime in at the time. And I said, can I have the number of the Chicago White Sox? And, you know, they give me the number. I call up, and I called Ted Turner 50 times, Chris, 50 times, never talked to him once until he started cackling at me. And I said, there's this little, little woman on the switchboard. And back in those days, they had one of those two plug switchboard things. And I said, is Bill Vec there? She goes, hold on. Hello? I go, Bill Vec, speaking. Bill was sort of, he's yelling at me because he's sort of deaf. Speaking. I go, Bill, my name's MC Antill, and I've done this, blah, blah, blah. He goes, you did what? He goes, well, I, I, I walked down here, and Ted Turner just walked out here, jerked up, jerked me around. But here's the deal. I said, I started out in upstate New York. I got a ton of publicity. I was on, I was in, it was in, I was in local television in New York and Washington and Philadelphia. I said, I've been on Paul Harvey News, NPR, and, and I said about the AP, all these different major sources want a follow-up story. Here's the follow-up story. Ted Turner was a jerk. You heard about it. You heard, you knew why a kid would want to walk a thousand miles to work for a baseball team. And you came to my rescue and you said, hey, kid, come to Chicago. We'll talk to you. And he goes, when can you get here? I go, I'll be there tonight. He goes, does that mean you're not walking? I go, no, no, I'm, I'm done walking. You know, and there's this long pregnant pause. He's like, I go, does that mean I don't have my interview? He goes, no, 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 you got your interview, but you tell him just the way you told it to me right now. I said, okay. And that's how I got to Chicago. It was on the basis of a good story. I told him a good story. I mean, that's a that that's a great story. And it's it's funny because people look at the idea of okay, worked in the in the front office of a of a baseball team. It's that's that's especially starting as a young kid that's signing yourself up to be an indentured servant kind of thing. I mean, like this isn't, this is not, there's nothing glamorous other than your association with the game, right? You get to work really hard and probably sleep under your desk. And if you have a desk. Chris, if you added up the value of the clothes on your back, including your glasses right now, that's probably more money than I made in a month. Okay. Seriously. I was making no money, but my very, like my very first day and it, cause the, the Bill's office wasn't an office. We had this cool old place called the Bard's room. And there used to be a place called the Stockyards Inn back when the Stockyards were a thing in Chicago. And there was a restaurant there and Bill had take, they were tearing it down. So Bill took the guts out and put them in Comiskey park at and, and it was, so we had this bar with media and the, and the employees used to eat and it was all mahogany and these gorgeous old Sally Rand, you know, uh, Carl Sandburg, all these old Chicago icons on the wall. And I came walking in, I was going to the men's room and I walked in and there in the corner, my very first day is Bill Vec with, at 10 o'clock in the morning with a beer in front of him and sitting next to him talking is Studs Terkel. And I'm going, this is going to be a really cool job. You know, this is like, I really like this job, you know? 
So it, and then it after, was, imagine that that the appeal of you walking to Atlanta is something that he saw a kindred spirit in you too. Like, hey, this guy might do something that I'd do. Yeah, I think I think his son Mike, who was sort of a rock and roller, and and Bill always said, "Hey, if Mike if Mike wants you, good by me." So Mike and I sort of connected, but the walk got me in. And, and then I realized that if Ted Turner didn't buy this thing, the one guy I know who would was Bill. Bill at the time was really scrambling to try to put together a team. So the front office stuff was not necessarily anything he was focusing on. We, we were trying, we had no money we, because Bill had bought the team right before the, the free agency ruling. So the, the economics of the game changed, which is why we had no money to speak of. We were doing it with smoke and mirrors, but Mike took a shine to me and Mike and I talked music a lot. He's a music geek. And so he said, I like this guy. Let's hire him. You know, so that was it. That's how I got in the door. But that, but that, but Bill's insight and Bill's name and reputation got my foot in the door, you know, opened the door for me. I I would imagine. And that was his program though, too, right? Was to go buy distressed teams and build them up in in one in terms of the product that he was putting on the field, but also in terms of entertainment. Because you're talking about it's about telling a good story, but it is about entertaining. And in entertaining, you're considering your audience, right? It was all about everything Bill did was focused on the fans. I mean, literally, I don't want to say literally, but figuratively anyway. All decisions ultimately had Bill sitting there making decisions and this figurative fan right next to him. I'll tell you what was great. People don't know this. It's like one of those great falling through the crack moments. But Harry Carey was our announcer, right? And uh, Bill went to Harry one day in the Bard's room after a game. And all the, literally, when I tell you like, well, I would sit there and like Ted Williams would be there and Eddie Matthews and like all these great old ball players, right? Um, Hank Greenberg. And cause they would just come in to see Bill, George Kell. <clears throat> so one night everybody's sitting there drinking beer and my buddy, Bobby, the guy who was telling, I was telling him I was just hitting my stride. Bobby was the bartender up there. So I would go behind the bar and work with Bobby once in a while, help him out. Right. And we'd just sit there and drink beer and listen to Bill and Ted Williams talk, right? It was just flying the wall stuff. And uh, one night, <clears throat> Harry goes, uh, I'm sorry, Harry's in there and he's drinking a beer and Bill goes, hey, Harry, I got an idea. He goes, tomorrow night in the seventh inning, we're going to drop a microphone down and you're going to reach out and you're going to lead everybody in a rendition of take me out to the ball game." And Harry goes, no fucking way, Bill. <laughs> he goes, come on, you're going to make me look like an asshole. And, and Bill's like, Bill's got his contract. He goes, you have a personal services clause right here, Harry. This is this is it right here, baby. You're doing this thing. And, and Harry is like, his head down. He's like, "There's you're, you're going to embarrass the crap out of me. And Within two weeks, it was a thing. Within two weeks, people were coming to games just to see 
and sing with Harry. And then he, he went to Chicago, he went to the North Side and, and started doing this for the Cubs. And it became an international phenomenon. But it was amazing uh, to watch to how Bill had all things. The Wrigley, the, the, the Ivy and Wrigley, that's Bill. Harry Carey, that's Bill. Bill wanted to have, uh, he wanted to move the St. Louis Browns that he owned to L.A. And they're like, there's no way. He wanted to sign Satchel Page in an entirely Negro League team to play in L.A. And they're like, no way. That's never going to happen. You know what I mean? Bill was so far ahead of the curve and stuff like this. But he also, he integrated integrated the American League too, right? When he was Absolutely. with Cleveland with Larry Doby. And, and, and Larry was around the office a lot. It's funny. I was in, I was in New York, New York once and uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in an event with Rachel Robinson. And I, and I said, Hey, Miss Robinson, you know, I'm friends with, that's when I was working with Sheila Johnson. And um, I said, Oh, I, I said, I used to work with Larry Doby. And I said, you know, we knew Larry is just one of the guys in the offices, but until recently, I never knew that Harry integrated the American League, or that that um, Larry integrated the American League, and she goes, "It's way different thing than Jack." And she sort of bristled, and and I was like, "Ooh, I I, I danced a little too close to her, her legacy and Jack's legacy, and she was going to defend Jack for all she was worth, and I and I never brought it up again. But when you think about it, <clears throat> what poor Larry Doby had to go through, there were cities that didn't have a national league um team so uh you know so in cleveland for example larry goes well that's the first black guy they ever saw in cleveland right in washington there were other cities that did not have national league teams plus the fact this is only about two or three months after jackie robinson so it was incredible what larry had to go through but nobody remembers that. Nobody gives Larry any any historical, you know, thumbs up for what he must have gone through. And he was just a guy in the office to us, you know. Being second, I mean, being second is is second, and and in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter how how closely behind because there really needed to be that one person who is the champion in a lot of ways. And but Jackie had a connection to Syracuse too, right? It played his minor league ball in Syracuse around the time that you were around the in the sixties, right? Or, or, or no? Jackie was uh, Jackie. Um, it was funny because this book that I've written, um, it's really the story. It's a basketball game, but the basketball game is a is a hook to tell you the larger story about what happened to the city when they took. Interstate 81, right through the heart of it. And where they put it is right through what was called the 15th Ward, which was the black neighborhood. And when Jackie, the year before, he broke the color line, he was playing AAA in Montreal for the, the Royals, which is the uh, Dodgers AAA farm system. And they and the Syracuse Chiefs were going head-to-head for um, supremacy. Well, when he would come to town, he couldn't stay with his team in the hotel. And there was a there was a, a an old Negro League player named Jimmy Jimmy Fay I think was his name, and he lived in the Fifteenth Ward. So Jackie used to stay with him. And then there were all these great little taverns, these African American taverns that you know Jimmy Brown and Will Chamberlain, because Syracuse was an NBA team, 
Jimmy Brown was from Syracuse. So all these huge African-American athletes would go there and listen to jazz and the clubs would stay open all night long. But Jack would never, ever venture, venture out of the ward because he didn't dare go to a place that served alcohol because of what Branch Rickey had warned him about ever getting into it. You know, I mean, like the whole world was watching him. So Jack spent his nights in the in the 15th ward. And actually, at one of the games in Syracuse, um, one of the fans, when Jack was up, took a black cat and threw it out right in the middle of the of the field. And this black cat in the whole place, you know, roared and stuff. And it was was not a it was not a shining moment for my for my hometown, you know. Not a shining moment in your hometown, but how do you look at writing this book? Because yeah, you're you're talking about race. You're talking about the transformation of of, of a city as well, right? That that had been sort of this crown jewel for a long time, but in the mid '60s, then was starting to to evolve. But it also, in so many ways, it sounded like a love story. Oh, it's it's very much a love story to your heritage, to your hometown. I've never written anything, Chris, that I about which I've been more passionate. And there were times when I would literally be almost in tears writing because I was writing with such great affection for this place. And I was, I'd like to think that I was being honest about it, but you know, like we were writing about the 1960s. Um, um, you know, back then there was two two sides of the Vietnam experience. There was, you know, make love in that war. Then there was America, love it or leave it. And there's one part of us that had this sort of binary thing that if you're not saying great things about this country, you must hate it. And in my case, I said some really hard truths about my, my own town. And there's some people back then who feel, oh, you you just hate Syracuse. You're just dissing Syracuse. I'm going, it couldn't be any further from the truth. I love this place. And I'm just trying to keep the Syracuse that I grew up with that helped shape me as a man, as a writer. I wanted to bring it back to life. And and so it's it's it was an amazing, almost spiritual journey doing all this research, piecing all these little pieces together as I put this book together. How much did you know? Because I think growing up, you knew, you know, this is this part of town. This is that part of town. These are these characters. And and your characters, in so many ways, it's, it, it, it's so visual. I mean, it, it's like you've done the writing, but it almost, but it's like, I can, I can see it just talking about like, you know, the clouds dropping anchor in Syracuse, uh, you know, the the Friday night fish fry, uh, to me, I mean, I, I couldn't help but uh, that that brought me back, the Friday night fish fry actually brought me back to like, uh, to that Chris Christopherson song, the uh, Sunday morning coming down, you know, where he's talking about crossing the street and the, the, the somebody's frying chicken, the smell of Sunday frying chicken, you know. What an amazing comp, I never really thought of it. That's why that song, always resonated with people because like the 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 guy who's the mayor in the book's son reached out to me and he says you know i can not only see and hear the syracuse that i grew up with but i could smell it and and it was weird because i i never realized that i had that component to my writing but a 
people like yourself just reached out just saying, how did you do this? Because I could, I, I could see it in my mind's eye. And I, I don't, I've never been a, a visual um, learner. I've always been an oral learner. So in my own, own mind, I hear the book in my mind or my ear. I don't see it. I don't see the, the images. But every once in a while, I, I did this little technique. Like Billy E., the guy who was the coach in one of the two teams, Billy E. had glasses all the time. So every once in a while, I would have him finger his glasses up his nose. And when I do that, people are like, wow, I'm there. I could see it. You're not just explaining what was happening. I suddenly see it. And this is one little thing I can hold on to. And by the way, um, quick aside, Billy E., the guy who was, there's probably no central character in the book. He's probably as close as it comes. Billy just passed two days ago. Two, two weeks shy of his 95th birthday. He's down in Florida. So a little toast to Billy E., who I couldn't have done without him. Most assuredly. You know, Chris, is, you know, I talked about this thing being a spiritual journey. Um, I, I was raised a Catholic, and I'm certainly not much of a Catholic now. But um, this one priest, he's a, he's a Monsignor now. His name is Chuck Fahey. And and I always I always tell Chuck Chuck I know I'm getting old when I can call him on senior Chuck, but uh, he would say you know he says this is amazing you're writing like four books here you got a basketball book you got a a book about the Catholic Church you got a book about the building of a highway and then you got this building about '60s culture '60s youth culture sort of blossoming right he says you're like writing like four books I go well. I guess technically I wrote five books because it is in a here it's your, so people can see it's a it's a five book set here, but um, <clears throat> he said you know um, you're doing the Lord's work here. I said what do you mean? He says well he said this these stories of these these little shards of information have all been out there for years decades, and nobody's ever bothered to put them together. And he said you not only have found them all like Humpty Dumpty's eggshell, but you've sat there for like 10 years and pieced them all together into a narrative. And I said, I got to tell you, Chuck, I can't figure it out, but I get up every morning and and I uh, I, I can't wait to get the, to the computer because I sit there and type and I, the story's in there. I'm like, oh my God, here we go. And I go, I don't know what's getting into me. He goes, I do. I go, what? He goes, that's the Holy Spirit. And I said, you know, Chuck, I'm a recovering Catholic, and I'm not sure that that's true. But I'll tell you what: from this point forward, that my that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So I was guided by the Holy Spirit. That's the way I look at it. He, he's done his job too. He, he's got that little twist in you, and you go, "Oh, may, may, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe." I thought it was maybe. Samuel Beckett, but maybe it's the Lord. Okay, yeah, maybe I'm not such a great writer after all, right? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that's the way that artists often talk about it, too. It's not necessarily yours. It's something that comes through you oftentimes, and you're as much a vehicle. But that's that's what amazed me. I mean, you talk about the five different elements, and, and, and it's the five different elements. I mean, it's 1960s Syracuse. It's it's the city. It's the evolution of the city. I mean, certainly, and 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 painting the picture, Syracuse as being more blue collar versus Rochester, which was more white collar, and the pride of the blue collar, the pride of going into 
into the fish fry on Friday because they are Catholics and they're going to eat fish. But knowing that you have two days, that you have two days off. And, and and so basketball and race, but so much of this is also exactly what we're seeing within our society right now, too, right? Just the the bifurcation of 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 our of our country. And, and and the pride in being an American and being and working hard and sweating and the broad backs and the and, and putting yourself into it and the, the people who, who do things as opposed to thinking things and how do we how do we create all of this? And what I loved was the mastery of the essence of of the city and how the puzzle pieces fit together. But it's not it's the story of the game and the story of the city, but it's also about the people and the right way to look at the world. I mean, it's kind of like you're giving us a, an elevated view of being able to look at the world and see how everything comes together. Cause oftentimes we're also lost in the minutia of our lives and our days that we don't see how the pieces fit together. How were you able to achieve? Because I'm I'm assuming that there was a part of it that came from your upbringing. It was part of what you knew growing up, but then complementing it with that research to get this sense of mastery that people go, oh, okay, I had lived in Syracuse and I I understand it on a visceral level, but I don't know if I understood it on a cere- cerebral level. You know, it's really interesting, Chris. When I grew up, I thought Syracuse was all I ever knew. Eight, nine, ten years old. I was living in the, the near western suburbs. It was the city city limits line was blocks from my house. So I was, even though I was in the burbs, I was relatively close to the city. <clears throat> but Syracuse was like it was Mecca. It was it was a thing. It was an internationally important city. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I'm telling you, carrier air conditioners were made there. Um, um, there was a church, uh, the baking, uh, Arm and Hammer baking soda was there. Um, there was uh, Smith Corona typewriters were, were made there. Half the typewriters in the country, right? Half the typewriters in the country were made there. Um, Marcellus Casket, uh, there was, um, there were at least 40 different factories in Syracuse. There was so much money coming from all over the world into Syracuse at 162,000 people. Syracuse had a professional theater company. They had a professional opera company. They had an internationally known art museum. They had a symphony orchestra. It was astounding that this little city that, but for the university, might have been called Utica, was internationally known. And it, it imported... Literally every ecclesiastical candle in every church in the globe was made in Syracuse, New York. I mean, specialty stuff. Stickly furniture was made in Syracuse, New York. Oneida silver was made in Syracuse, New York. Iroquois China, Syracuse China. It was all made there. And everybody had a job. As a matter of fact, that's why the black population in Syracuse grew so exponentially. Because these migrant workers, these guys who are coming up from the south, where they'd come up to for seasonal picking work and they'd look at all the factory work, paying four times what they're making. And it was backbreaking factory work, but they're like, nope, 
I'm staying right here. And so this little 15th ward, which was built for 5,000 people, pretty soon had almost 16,000 people living in the same space. And by in the 1950 census, a third of the, of the homes there didn't have running water. So it was really two different worlds. There was the, war, the ward and then Syracuse proper. And so, as I've told people, this book really started out as a book about basketball and ended up being a story about the highway. Because once they determined that the highway was going to go straight through the heart of the ward, it started to trigger the white flight to the suburbs because admittedly these houses were older and probably needed to come down, but there was no accommodation given to any of the black families that were living there because most of them were tenants and they weren't being compensated. So they weren't given money to move. They were just said, here, you got to move. Well, nobody would rent to them. So suddenly they're, there, there's almost a borderline homeless problem in the 1960s. And and as they started creeping into these neighborhoods around the highway that was being built, it triggered the white flight to the suburbs. And that's the point at which the, the whole city changed. You know, The whole city changed. And, and the basketball game is is central, is, or basketball is central to Syracuse. I mean, with, with the university... You had the professional team at the time, the Nats, and and but also sort of this, uh, you know, the 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 parochial league versus it, which which is, I mean, you're talking about this tiny little school, right? I mean, it's what like eighteen, well, eighteen see, kids or something here, like. That. Here's the thing about the parochial league, and this is what, and I've never found there was one league I found sort of in Denver that was kind of close, but no city. In any any that I that I found in the entire country had this, <clears throat> excuse me. But in every other city, Chris, and this is one of the things that your your listeners and viewers should know. Every other city in the country, there were these network of Catholic grammar schools, and then after eighth grade, they would be channeled into these regional, larger Catholic junior and senior high schools. Well, in Syracuse. They had this, it was a factory town. You had these 10 little schools, all of them Catholic, all of them, not K through eight, but K through 12. And they were all based in neighborhoods. So you had your lower class Irish neighborhood, your upper class, your Ukrainian neighborhood, your German neighborhood, your Italian neighborhood, a Polish neighborhood. And these kids would play for these teams alongside kids that they went to kindergarten with from fourth grade. They've had the same classmates, the same teachers, the same nuns all the way through. It was like a factory system. You took these little souls as four-year-olds and you taught them every, and by the end of the thing, they're, they're ready to come out a polished young Christian soldier, right? Right. Catholic soldier. And so it was a factory system. And the new Bishop, again, if Walter Foy, Loved it, and he went to bat for it. Didn't matter. The whole country was building regional Catholic schools, and Forey loved this little system. But then after Vatican II, we went over there. He had a meltdown, and he was probably getting early onset. And he came back home, and they sort of quietly took his power away. And as they did, 
the bishop underneath him, a guy named David Cunningham, started breaking ground on these big suburban schools, Catholic schools, and they started siphoning. Not only were, were the, this the white flight to the suburbs, but these schools were siphoning the life out of these 10 little Catholic schools, neighborhood schools, and then one by one they started to go. And so this game was the final all-city game. At the end of the year, the, the winner of that parochial league would weigh the winner of the city league. Well, the city league schools kept getting bigger and their teams blacker as the years went on. And so by the final year of the, of the, of the year I'm writing about, this little Polish school had like 19 boys in the senior class. Corcoran probably had 700 in, in their senior class, right? And so it was it, it was sort of a David Goliath story, except Sacred Heart had a team of big, strong Polish kids, and they were they were not they were not David by any means. These kids were they, they had three kids that played division one basketball. They were all like six, five, six, six. It, it's it's a really interesting mix because you'd think that the that the black school was was the favored, and they might have been, but not because they were the better team. It's just that that these big Polish kids were just tough. So it's a, the game, the book is about that one game with all the background that that you well, it's talk. about that background, and you talked about the education taking these kids from four years old through eighteen, but basketball was a big part of that education too, and playing the game oh, it was huge properly. How did you how did you find a way to wrap your wrap your mind around this whole story? Because it is, I mean, because obviously you did exhaustive research. It's not just you just didn't sit down and say, well, I'm gonna write about this. How did you wrap your mind around it? I mean, it's such a big story. Chris, when you and I were seeing each other on a pretty regular basis, I had already started this thing. And I would lay in bed at night, even out in in Vail, Colorado, thinking, how am I going to tell this story? There are so many moving parts. And I'm like, I'd be, I'd be starting to write it. And I'm like, how, how am I going to fit Father Brady into this thing? So for, for people here, there was this priest named Father Brady, who was, uh, he, he was in um, Syracuse, New York, before World War II. He went to, he was a small town guy. He went to the South Pacific where he was assigned to be chaplain for a bunch of soldiers and seamen, including large number of black soldiers and seamen. And he was watching the valor with which these kids fought and died for their country. And he knew damn well that back home, there's people who would lynch them. These kids were giving their lives for people who would lynch them. And it changed him forever. And he came back to Forey, to the bishop and he said, I can't do this anymore. I can't go back there. And he and he said, um, I want to go to the 15th ward. What do you mean the 15th ward? He goes, he goes, well, we send missions to Uganda or Tanzania or whatever to to say, you know, convert souls. Why don't I do that in the ward? So Ford goes, okay. So he sends him to the ward. Well, he became what they called the saint of Syracuse. He was he, he took the, the word of God out of the pulpit into the streets. And, and so as I'm writing all this other stuff, this basketball stuff, this highway stuff, I'm like, oh, where do I fit Brady in? Because he's essential to this thing. As a matter of fact, the two starting backcourt and the, and the black team 
were both kids brought up Baptists, but they converted and they were altar boys under Brady. And I'm like, I'm not even sure I can fit that in, but like everything was folding back on itself. You know what I mean? So I'm like, wow, Jimmy Collins, who was a, a great basketball player, voted the best in the history of the city, told me one time, he says, you know, Brady wanted me to be a, 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 a an altar boy. And he said, I'm, Father, I'm not Catholic. He said, ah, don't worry about it. You know what I mean? It's like, don't worry about it. Come on. God doesn't care. You know, you're serving the Lord. Who cares what religion you are? But but Brady was Brady was really cool. He was really cool. I mean, just amazing because he would go and walk around. I mean, just walk the streets, right? That was his. He would put he would put food on the on the hood of his of his beat up old car and let people come out and take it. Um, his old parish gave him. There were other two things that were made in Syracuse were, were Nettleton shoes, which were world famous for their quality, and Learberry men's clothes. So they bought him a Learberry winter coat and and as a going away gift and a pair of Le, um, Learberry shoes. By the time he got to his humble little home, he had given both away to homeless people. You know what I mean? He was just a truly remarkable guy. Truly remarkable guy. Remarkable and and so so you found a way to wrap all these people in. I mean that's I mean that's the the whole writing thing, right? Is 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 kill your darlings kind of thing, right? You're and but you found a way to to make the pieces work because because it is such a character driven story. Yeah. In the game, we're looking at these kids, right? So these kids are kids. They're in this huge game. But these kids, these people who were kids then, are pushing eighty right now. Right, right. If, if yeah. they're if they're still alive, as you're writing, and the story, so the story's been etched. The story's been etched, you know, since the '60s, since '67, right? So, as the writer, do you find yourself cheering? For the characters in the story, for the players in the game, because you know how it happened. I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Collins, right? So there was a, there was the foul against Jimmy Collins, and you're like, you know, as the writer, are you going, oh well, I, I hope Jimmy Collins doesn't get fouled, or I hope, right, I hope right. he's, he's. That's interesting. I, 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 I didn't think of that the basketball thing was anything other than just a hook to get people in, but. Was, again, so people know, I wrote this thing online. So I would finish a chapter and I would put it up online and I would crowdsource my my accuracy, my grammar, all the other stuff. People would say, hey, you know, page 32, blah, blah, blah. You got a typo here. I would fix it. Well, this one guy used to be the editor of the local Arts Weekly, lives up in Seattle now, reached out to me. He goes, my God, you, get, you gaslighted me. I go, what? He goes, I read I read 30 chapters and I'm waiting to see who won the game and it's not up there. I go, well, it's not done yet. He goes, I'm I'm done. I did the whole thing to find out who won. And it occurred to me, wow, I, I really do have a little bit of a of a who done it here. Or like you gotta, there's gotta be an element of of drama to this thing because you want to know who wins. So a part of me, one of the teams has to win, one of them has to lose. I truly fell in love with all the characters on both, and especially the coaches on both teams. 
was weird. I, I, um, the the guy who was the the coach on the on the black team was a a white man named Kenny Hoffman. Was a simple little farm boy, and I don't mean simple in a in a mental way. I mean just simple in his his wants, his life, his needs were all simple, and he was just really straightforward and honest. Well, it's simple but essential, right? I mean, it's just what is important. What's the priority? To watch how these black kids responded to this guy. You know, when he died, um, his wife told me that the, the the line wrapped around the funeral home, and she says, Kenny would love the fact that there were as many black faces as there were white ones out there. You know, they love this guy because he always went to bat for them. He always was there for them. Well, he lost a, f- a few heartbreakers or, or whatever, but l- it was weird when I was, everybody had this notion of what my book was going to be like. Cause this parochial league back in Syracuse is still this thing that people love it. And they had this notion, this sepia colored image of what they wanted this book to be. So everybody had those opinions about what they wanted to do. And so I was telling Kenny Hoffman before he passed, I said, Kenny, you know, I'm really torn because I want to do this thing, and, but people are like, you know, there's part of me wants to do a history of the league and there's this other social element. I just don't know where I want to go with it. And he goes, MC, he says, let me tell you something. It's your book. You tell your story. If they want to tell a different story, let them write their own damn book. And so when Jimmy Collins and I were talking years later, <clears throat> and Jimmy was named the greatest player in the history of Syracuse high school basketball, we happened to be talking and I congratulate him. And I said, but can I tell you something? I never would have said this years ago, but you and I share something in common now. I said, what? Yeah, I go, we were both both coached by Kenny Hoffman. He said he coached me on my book. And it was like one of the greatest bit of advice I ever got because it, it emboldened me to say, no, this is my story. I'm telling it. And he's the guy who made that possible. It's interesting that you say your story too, that he's saying, tell your story. And he's really saying it. You know, tell it from your perspective, tell it in terms of what's important. But as a writer, even though this is a work of nonfiction, you are really telling your story, too. I mean, the the story of who you are, the lens of what you're looking through, you know, what's what's important, too. Did you how was that as a journey for you as a writer? Here's what I'll tell you about that, Chris. And I really mean this seriously. It wasn't, it, it, yes, it's, it's partly my story because it, it is my hometown. So I had this <clears throat> deep personal connection to it, but I haven't lived in Syracuse for years. What I did when I wrote this thing, and I really mean this seriously, it didn't start out this way, but this subsequent to my conversation with Kenny Huffman, I started to write the book for one person. I wrote it for me. What kind of story would I want? It? So I love music. So there's plenty of music in there. There's there's a lot of culture. There's a lot of black culture. There's a lot of Polish culture because I'm a geek and I love stuff like this. So it was like somebody gave me a Christmas tree and 9,000 ornaments and just said, have at it, right? And I'm like, okay. So I said, because I, what, I what I wanted to create was a document that, God forbid the creek don't rise, this thing's around 100 years from now. Somebody who was a 19, 20-year-old kid wants to know what life was like in the middle of an industrial town in the middle of the 20th century. Read this book. 
It'll transport you back in time. It won't just tell you on an intellectual, it'll tell you on a visceral, on an emotional, on an all-consuming sensual level, right? And that's what I tried to do. So I wrote the book for me, you know. Really? So you were you were your audience. I was my audience. Now, I, I ironically, I worked at ESPN. I worked in baseball. I'm not a particularly sports nut. I like sports, but I sort of take it with a grain of salt. But I know that sports is a great breaker of ice, right? It's it's you know, olive oil is the thing you put in food because it allows flavors to move from one from one ingredient to the next. Sports is that currency that we share as, as a society. It allows us people very dissimilar to bond over something. Sports is this unifying element. Well, I use sports as a way to just say, okay, get them in the door and tell your story, but every once in a while we'll use a sports story because if they get a little bored with the history, we'll tell them about a good basketball game. They go, oh, okay, here comes the basketball game. I want to read this now, you know? So that's what it was. It was just a big old hook to get people in, you know. Well, and and, and it's a it's a tremendous hook, but it's also it's also that sense of as you say, it's that sense of of being there. But you didn't you, you didn't have any other ideas in terms of the audience. You wanted to write. I mean, it's it's funny because I was just uh, I was just doing a little bit of research on Charles Schultz. And because because I just had somebody on who was a who was from Australia, and she was you know a day ahead of us, and I had always quoted Charles Schultz as you know saying that the world can't end because it's already tomorrow in Australia, which turns out he didn't actually say that, but it just fits better in my mind that he yeah, said right. it. But but he was saying the same kind of thing that he that he does it, and he and he would say if if it makes me laugh if, if if i think it's funny if i think it's silly then it's good i'm not asking anybody else it, it's challenging with a book to not necessarily have that that audience like i often talk about like in announcing like in skiing i, I feel like i feel like my mother is my audience in some ways right well, there you go it's the same sort of thing yeah. yes yeah. So playing to that and going, okay, what would she like? What would she need? How would she take it? You know, and that's kind of the, uh, that that's kind of, but, but as you're sitting there, because writing is not public. Right. You know, it, right. it is the most solitary thing. I mean, you talk about some of the Irish poets and, and th there was, there was a fair amount of whiskey that went on with the, with the Irish poets. And sometimes happy hour came earlier and earlier, how do you as a writer deal with that? Because you are you are a, a charming, charismatic, social guy. How do you deal with the social part of being a writer? Yeah, that, that was not easy. I got to be honest with you. Now, part of me is a, is a, is a little bit of a, is a geek and a loner and loves to just sort of, you know, peruse and study. And, but you're right. I mean, having to get out and communicate with people sort of helped keep me sane. Um, because it, it, Red Smith once said about writing, oh, it's easy. You just sit down at, the, at a typewriter and open a vein, right? And it's, you know, somebody says, oh, writing's easy. Yeah, sit down at a, sit down at a blank page and tell me writing is easy. You know what I mean? Um, so it there is something about that. But I, I guess my, my, my mantra is, Chris, you know, 
who likes to exercise, right? Nobody really likes to exercise. You love having exercise. That's the way. I hate writing. I love having written. And it's a trade-off, right? I'll say, I'll, the joy of having written more than eclipse how badly I hate sitting there putting a thousand words down and reading it going, this stinks, you know? But I'll go back the next day and I'll clean it up. And by two or three days, you go, well, that suddenly doesn't suck, you know? So, and then then you look at it, you go, wow, I did that. And I, that's what I hold on to, that I did that kind of thing, you know? Right, and you have to hold on to it before you start. It, you you have to know what's going to be there, right? Because, but And I will tell you, one of the reasons this thing, and, and again, people should know, <clears throat> I started this book back in like 03 was my first meeting with these uh with these two teams and um and I started writing stuff people were because this is a largely an oral history they were telling me things I was writing entire chapters that turned out to be bullshit they weren't even true because I would read them to somebody and they go that's not true and I go what so and so told me he's full of shit you know that kind of thing and I'm like and so it was so frustrating because I was trying to get the story right. And you you read the, the piece about the Jimmy Collins foul. You know, depending upon who you talk to, there were two ways to look at, at that at that controversial foul call. And but I finally said, you know what? I want to just tell it as objectively and as passionately as I can, but not make any judgment on it and let people decide for themselves. And the whole book ultimately became that. The very same things being the very same event, the very same set of circumstances being told, but viewed through two sets of eyes, one black and one white. And therein lies, I think, this, what, I just had a guy call me about three weeks ago, and he thought, because he was at the very first game with the controversial call, and he thought, frankly, what I was saying about the race and the, and the racial tension was just not true. He says, I was there. I didn't feel it. But he says, I've read your book and I've gotten to know Joe Raddick, one of the black players in it. And and I lived in this little part of the city that I just thought was Eden. I thought it was Mayberry, right? And Joe would what said to remind, told me a few years ago about walking up Glenwood Ave on his way to school at Corcoran. And invariably, one person or another almost every day would call him a nigger. And, and I never realized that. And he said, and I did, I look, realized that in the game you're writing about, I was sitting in this white section, but I wasn't sitting in the other section, right? And had I been doing so, I might've thought differently. He says, and I got to tell you, I didn't like your book, what I didn't before I read it. Now that I've read it, I want to thank you because you opened my eyes I think you've done a great service to people like myself who thought they knew everything there was to know about this situation. You've, you've, you've shown me there's two ways to look at anything. It was really nice of him to say that. It is. And I think that's one of the remarkable things that you've done is you've, you've helped us to be able to see the essential in the world, you know, because I think that, that oftentimes we see it through our own bias or we see it through an historical bias or whatever bias we're applying 
and we don't necessarily see the elements for who they are. So you do a tremendous job of that. Where can people, where can people find your book? Because it's both audio and and now there is a, yeah, there, a published hard, a, well, not hardcover, but a but a, a printed version. I'll show you this. This is available. All three are available. If you go to my my um, floorburnsbook.com, it's F L O O R B U R N S bookcom uh, you can buy it there directly or that'll have a link to amazon <clears throat> it'll take you directly to the pages for both the audible audio audiobook and the ebook uh, the kindle version so um, i'll tell you two quick stories chris um about this book what it did for me um again it took me on this path it it brought me into these communities that i had as a kid no occasion to ever talk to, ever interact with. And there was this one guy who was this sort of legendary bad guy, badass in the black in the black neighborhood, in the 15th Ward. His name was Bobby Harrison. Bobby did two stints in Attica. Um, he One time, he got in a hand-to-hand combat with a cop and shot the cop in the shoulder with the, with the cop's own gun and did, did two stints. He was there for the riot in Attica, right? And, and so people would tell me about Bobby, black folks I would talk to would tell me about Bobby Harrison. And they said, is Bobby Harrison still alive? Oh yeah, I mean, he's, he's alive, but he's crazy. You don't want to be messing with Bobby Harrison. Said, you know, I'm like, no, I kind of would like to be messing with I'd like to talk to Bobby Harrison. No, oh, man, don't be talking to Bobby Harrison. Hey, you know, he, he's crazy. And, and Bobby was just the type of kid. There was one guy said, when he was like 14, he and his little dog named Fellow was on a chain and he, he was riding around with his bike. He, they said pimps, gangsters, they would be running. They, they would not want to make eye contact with Bobby Harrison because he was such a badass. A little guy, but he backed down from nobody, right? So <clears throat> I finally reached out to him. I called him probably five or six times and he never got back to me. Finally, he called me one day. And I see the name. I said, wow, Bobby Harrison. He said, yeah, so-and-so said you're, you're writing something. He says, and you're writing the truth. And he says, you know, I got great-grandbabies now. And I don't want them to think that their granddaddy was just some loser, some punk. You know, I, I, I want to tell my story. I said, that's what I'm here for. So we started talking regularly. Well, the day after George Floyd called, uh, he calls me up. I said, hey, Bobby. He said, can we talk? I said, yeah. And I didn't say a word, Chris, for the next 45 minutes. He just talked about, this is why I always hated white people, especially white people in uniforms. I never trusted them. They killed my granddaddy, you know, right in front of me down south in in South Carolina. And I came up and I never, ever trusted white men in uniform. And I've spent my entire life trying to get over that. And he just like was pouring his heart out this is a guy who did two stints in attica and i hung up the phone and i was like i was moved because this of all the people this guy wanted to bear his soul to about this it was this white guy right you know and i'm like i i teared up i'm like wow that was that was really moving and then uh, so there was another guy manny brilliant was this magnificent guy who sort of knew my dad a little bit, but he was the coach 
of, of one of the other black teams in the city. Legendary, first black guy ever to win a scholarship at Syracuse University. But <clears throat> Manny was having a celebration for his life at this place called Bethany Baptist Church. He invited me back. So I go to this church. I figure there's 500 people there. I think I'm the only white person in the whole place. But then all of a sudden, the Master of Ceremonies introduces this one guy named Bob Capone, this little Italian guy, about 5'8", comes walking down the middle, and everybody stands and applauds for this guy. They come out, and they hug him, and they're like, who is this guy? Turns out he and Manny worked together at Central High, which was a predominantly black. He was there the day after Dr. King was killed. It was instrumental in keeping these kids under control that day. And I went up to him and I said, I, I said, I got to, I got to meet this guy. So I, I introduced myself and he goes, Oh, you're the guy writing that book. I said, yeah. I said, can we talk? I said, yeah, sure. So we talked probably 12 times. Well, about a month ago, this other guy that I, who went to central was a white kid said, Hey, Bob Capone's wife died. So he sends me the, the, the thing. And I know she had MS and I said, Oh my God, I'm so, pick up the phone. I call him, I said, I'm so sorry about your wife, Bob. He goes, oh my God, I can't believe you called. I go, no, believe me, I had to call. You're, you're part of my life now, right? You're, you helped me with my book. And he goes, no, no, I mean, I can't believe you called right now. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, it, it my wife's funeral this morning. I went, whoa, wait, your wife's funeral was this morning? He goes, yeah, about two hours ago. I go, oh my God, you must have a house full of people. I'll, I'll let you go. He goes, no, 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 there's nobody here. But that's the point. He said, at the funeral, I get emotional just thinking about this. At the funeral, this woman comes up and she's got something behind her back. And she gives me a hug and she reaches out and she hands it to me. And she said, I just finished this thing. I think you should read this. It's really good. And it was your book. And I went home, and Bob says, I'm going home to this empty house, and I'm dreading it. And I've, I walk in, and I sat down at the kitchen table. I still have my coat on, and I haven't stopped reading your book in two hours, just leafing through it. And I haven't thought once about my situation. And he says, and here you are calling me. And I went, oh, my God, Bob. That was, you know, like, again, like, I'm not strong enough for stories like that, but you got to warn me if you're going to tell me stuff like this, you know? So, but it's like stuff like that has been happening all the time, Chris, with this book. And I just, again, like you said, it's not my, it's not my story. It's some, it's just coming through me. But the, the notion that it's moving me into places that I never would have gone before as a man, as a fellow Syracusean, it's just a member of the human race. You know, it's just, it's been a gift that I just will will never, ever be able to thank God enough for, you know. Well, it also, it makes your story dynamic too, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's those days that you sit down and say, I'm going to feel better for having written this book, but you're not imagining that all of these people will one, read it, and two, be touched by it. And three, share that they're touched by it with you. You know, which in a lot of ways, as the artist, you're not necessarily prepared for right. that part. You're prepared for, okay, give it flight. Here it is. I've, I've done it. 
it, they're, they're, go go be free book and and not for it to come back to you so just absolutely amazing how do you like when you do some of these conversations would you would you record those conversations because i'd imagine I, I recorded a lot of them but but eventually what i realized is that i would refer to them certainly as a baseline but the deeper that somebody had a memory a memory or a recollection or something i would just call them time and time again and they would tell me stories over and over again sometimes and each time they would learn they would even remember a little bit more and i would flush it out a little bit more there was one story in particular these two young black black players were they came across a a, a trooper who was a racist i mean a flat out racist and one of the two told me a story and i was like that's that's a good story, but I'm not sure I'm buying it. And it took me two months to find the other guy. And I finally did. He was in Muscle, Muscle, excuse me, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And I said, Hey, do you remember blah, blah, blah? He goes, Yeah. I said, and there was a trooper down there. He says, Yeah. He goes, I could, could you tell me that story? And he told me virtually the exact same story. I said, okay, I'm good with that now. That's a, that's a true story. Because these two hadn't talked in decades, had no reason to like corroborate their stories. But it was, um, so that was really one of the, the hardest parts for me was to determine which of these things were true and which were a product of one man or one woman's memory. You know what I mean? So I didn't want to build an entire book. On a yeah, false the arbiter of, of truth. It's really... There's a lot of responsibility. It's there. a moving target. It really is. And I, it, it was funny because uh, somebody called me out on my book and said, "Hey, you know these two guys you talk about, like you, you like they're great guys." I go, "They're he goes, they're punks." I go, "See, here's the deal. If you told me this one guy was a punk, I would have said maybe I can live with that. But the other guy is not a punk. He's this, he's that, but he's not a punk. You see, but what you just did." was you 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 used broad general language to accuse me of something that I am literally laboring over every word to make sure it's accurate, right? You know, and just because it doesn't fit with your memory of this thing, cannot you cannot call me out because believe me, because I'm using real names and real people, I am super cautious about what I'm writing in this thing, you know? Uh, but but I will tell you, here's one of the things I should tell your readers and listeners. <clears throat> why should they pick up this book or why should they buy an auto, auto? It's Syracuse, New York, for God's sakes. They could be from anywhere, right? But you're from the you're from the Northeast. I'm from the Northeast. Virtually everything in this country began in the Northeast, right? And it emanated out over the centuries elsewhere. But from Minnesota to Boston, that in that that Rust Belt over there, for years that was the epicenter of the American experience in many ways. And even though I'm writing about Syracuse, New York, it could be Allentown, Pennsylvania. It could be you know Brockton, Massachusetts. It could be any number of factory towns, because there are certain universal truths. So what it is, I drilled down specifically to, to Syracuse. I tried to tell it in a way, almost any story 
that had a universal truth to it. And, 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 and as such, I think that no matter who you are, where you're from, you'll have a background. You go, wow, I can relate to this, you know? How much more do you feel that you know now universal truth as a result of writing the book, researching the book? I mean, this is, this is decades. You know, I learned, um, I think I learned the most, Chris, about myself. As, as the woman who read the book told me, she said, anybody can start a book takes a special kind of person to finish a book and my lord knows my mother is looking down at me from heaven going i never thought you'd ever finish that thing you know what i mean i started a lot of things in my life but i just did not finished a whole lot of them and i think it really i i remember i thought i was having a stroke about a year ago and it wasn't that it was a blood pressure thing that was related to covid ironically and um but i'm in the back of the ambulance I remember thinking to myself, I wasn't thinking about dying. I wasn't thinking about anything. The only thing I said was, thank God I finished the book. And it really made me feel like at peace. And it was like, oh, whatever happens, happens. I finished the book, you know. Oh, that is absolutely awesome. And and yes, as someone who started a lot of things and not finished a lot of them as well. I, oh, I take a number, it. Chris, you know. I mean, the, the, you talk about lining around the block. I mean, we all we all start things we don't finish. But this is one that I knew was. It's fat, because when I got cancer um, eight years ago, the book was in the closet. I hadn't touched it for 10 years. And I brought it out. And I said, you know what? <clears throat> if I don't tell this story, nobody's going to tell it. And, and so it was sort of a, a, a mission. It, it, was, it was a mission I was on to, because I wanted to, Give something back to this city that gave so much to me. You know, it really did. And so I was, I was delighted. As a matter of fact, if any of your <clears throat> um, viewers or readers or um, uh, listeners, if you do nothing else, read the forward. The forward of the book is the one thing that I would say, if it's not for you, you'll know at the end of the forward. But if, if you decide that after the forward you'd like to read on, I don't think you'd be disappointed is my point. No, I would agree with that. And the forward is absolutely spectacular as well. It really is. And it's, yeah, thank you. I mean, this is, it's, I, I guess I, I still, I mean, it, I feel like I want to end the, the conversation, but you keep sparking interest in me and in, in the, the mission that you were talking about, that the book took hold of you. The story took hold of you. You didn't really have a choice. You had to do it. It was related to so much of what you'd done before that you had the you had the the skills to be able to to pull it off, both both in terms of conversation, in terms of inter interpersonal connection, in terms of the writing, in terms of the storytelling, in terms of a worldview, et cetera, et cetera. You had you had a lens that could help you see this book, but this gets back to Beckett in some ways, right? Is this is this what you hope for as a human being is, is that you do these things and they lead to a point where you have a mission, where you're captivated, where you have to do this. You and I 
are in a somewhat similar situation, Chris. We we don't have any children of our own, right? As such, our legacies are way more complicated than, you know, because if you have children, you, there's, a, there's a chance that your grandchild or your, your whatever will grow up to do some great things. You have this incredible footprint now for all the things you've done in your life. This is this is the one thing that I will now be able to say, I was here. I I got into this world. I was given this set of circumstances and I didn't make much of it better, but I've tried to make this one little bit of it better. And here's a little bit of my soul that will be here for hopefully decades and maybe even centuries, as long as people read. And that and that this is my this is my evidence that I that at one point I passed along this path and I carved my name in a tree. You know what I mean? And that's what this book is for me. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And congratulations, but more than that, thank you. Thank you. No, it's, it, it's my pleasure. And I, you know, you and I, we've known each other for decades now and, and we are one of the, we, we have this thing and I really, that's why I love talking to you because you are as intellectually curious as I am. And you know what? The greatest gift a, ch- a parent could ever instill upon their children is intellectual curiosity. And you have that. My dad gave that to me. My dad had some shortcomings as a man, as a father, but he always gave life the ability to teach him something, you know? And and, I, and I'd like to think that that lives in me. And I think that that's the one thing you and I share. And I think that this podcast... I think one revolution, I think the things that you do with your life are very much reflective of the fact that you know there's more out there to learn. Most assuredly, there is. And 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 so much of it starts with interacting with people. You know, we're not gonna learn it all on our own. I mean, it's certainly there's reading, there's doing, there's but people are such a source of of knowledge and and the 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 thing that will stretch us. Yeah, no, kind of true. make it look look at things differently. So, MC, thank you so much for you, for joining us. Great. Total pleasure. Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. And I hope people get to see, get to read, or listen to your book. And maybe there will be more in the future. And if there is, we'll we'll talk about it in the future. Uh, can I tell you real quick before we go? Yeah, please. Um, <clears throat> um my my editor is brilliant. It was like going. Because a mutual friend, I was like, oh, man, Peter's really good, my my editor. And he goes, well, he ought to be. And he goes, he goes, you know, his uncle is. And he said, well, he says, let me phrase it. His mother is Norman Mailer's little sister, right? And so Peter would like blow me away with how he would massage my, my prose. Oh, well, when we get this thing down to 1,200 pages, 1,100 pages, whatever it is, he said, I'd love to have another shot at this thing. So about a few months ago, I said, hey, Peter, um, you said to me, like another shot of maybe thinning this thing down a little bit more. And he says, he says, you know, I'm a little busy, but I got, a, there's somebody I know. And there's this woman that I went to Harvard with. So she called me about two weeks ago and we had this incredible conversation. She just happened to be finishing up Friday Night Lights right now. And so rather than me trying to convince her to edit my book, she was like pitching me on letting her do this. 
She so believes in this story. She goes, oh my God. She goes, this is blowing my mind. This is like, I've read like three chapters. And I just, I'm totally in on this thing. And so I get the sense that that there, this thing still may have a second and third life in a more condensed version for national consumption. And then perhaps as a, as a film production or maybe makes perfect sense to me because reading it, it is so, it's so visual and you have such tremendous characters and the characters on in movies and in television are the reason that you come back. They're the reason when something ends that you think, Oh, I don't, I don't get to share my life with those people anymore. This is over. The, the, the one part about this this book though is that there are so many characters and they sort of come into your into your into your reality and then they leave. Sometimes they come back, but sometimes they don't. But they're all part of this fabric of this city that I tried to recreate. The generations, the races, the, the ethnicities, the religions, the everything, even the little the little neighborhood saloon moments. I just, you know, I they all work together, but it's it's unlike as my editor said, Peter said, this is not like any book I've ever really edited before. You know, it's not it's not traditional in that sense. I said, yeah, I guess there's that. So that's what makes it beautiful too, right? I mean, I think that that's so often it's hard it's hard to be different, but it's also great to be different. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah, unfortunately, this is, you know, it's, it's the way God made me. You know what I mean? It's just like, I, it's, it's the reason I left ESPN. I was like, no, I just can't do that. I can't go down that well-worn path. I'm going to take this thing where wherever my nose leads me. So far, so good. So thank and I you imagine your mother's looking down going. I, I hope she is. I hope she is. Yeah, I told him he should go that way, but I really appreciate the direction that he's gone and what he's what he's contributed. I like to think both my parents are proud of me because I got a lot of both of them still in me, you know. And and frankly, I dedicate the book to them. I said I, I think the dedication reads <clears throat> for mom and dad for giving me a sense of place because this whole book is about a place and a time, place and time and and home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Well. Thank you again. Thanks, Chris. It was and great. Total pleasure. Keep and up the great work. Make, seriously, it, it, what you do is is just amazing. You you really, you know, the, I think there's like three of you, right? You've cloned you've cloned the three of you. You're like, oh yeah, well Chris is doing it. Well Chris is over in Botswana right now. Chris is like climbing mountains, you know. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's 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 very flattering. But uh, but yeah, it's, uh, no. Just trying to keep up. I think trying to keep up and stay curious. That's exactly what we're all trying to get, do. Get on the mountain more regularly. That's what that's you, the objective. My, my advice to you. That's I think yeah. that's a good good advice. It that's for sure. Makes you whole. Makes you whole. Exactly. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And the greatest gift you can give us is tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. Please subscribe. Please subscribe. We'll let you know when the next one is coming and we will continue to bring you great people and great stories. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. 
Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.